I think that's the that's the like value and importance of evidence-based medicine. If you're tr if you're treating symptoms or identifying symptoms without understanding the cause, then you are at risk of providing poor ineffective treatment. And from a psychological perspective, you're shaping a person's reality and identity. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Roger McFillin. We've never spoken before, but I was intrigued by his Twitter posts. Roger has said a number of really informed, thought-provoking words on reasons to be critical and skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry and why drugs are not necessary or sometimes can be harmful in the treatment of mental health. So he has a controversial viewpoint and some really interesting observations as well about current cultural trends when it comes to mental health and illness. Um, so I'm excited to talk today and see what we discover. Welcome, Roger. Stephanie, thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what all you do? Sure. I am a clinical psychologist, and I am board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. And I run a center in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania called Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, where we provide um, cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy. I also am a co-host of a podcast called Radically Genuine. And uh, there we're talking a lot about the topics I'm sure we're going to discuss today around the mental health system, about what is safe and evidence-based mental health care. And we're critical of the, the widespread prescription drug culture that currently exists. And I've done a lot of research and spoke with experts around the globe regarding the safety and efficacy of psychiatric drugs. And we are experiencing what is best described as a mental health crisis. We are, we, in our culture, we have a, a significant increase in life-threatening conditions related to our mental health suicide, self-injury, hospitalizations, and more and more young people identifying with poor mental health. And I'm, I'm kind of critical of a lot of the, the cultural aspects that are, I believe are influencing in that and have suggestions and solutions for parents, families, educators, and therapists on how best to respond to what's happening in today's society. Well, I look forward to hearing some of those suggestions. I think we share similar concerns, you know, as much as we talk about this as a mental health crisis, I don't actually think there's a lot of emphasis on the health part. You know, one, one of the things that you and I are both concerned about right now is this kind of obsession with diagnosis. And, you know, oftentimes that comes in the form of self-diagnosis for teens and young adults through TikTok or WebMD. Um, but also I, I wonder when I see these young people who are kind of obsessed with that diagnosis, how many of them have received these diagnoses from mental health professionals? And if so, what's happening 
in the counseling environment that is contributing to them walking out of there and going on and making a, a TikTok video about how sick they are. And so this isn't really about mental health, is it? It's about the opposite of mental health. It's about mental illness. And uh, we're perpetuating it through these labels that are, are really meant to just be kind of placeholders or stepping stones to help people get better. I mean, I think in one of your episodes, you talked about how if you were to have strep throat, well, that's something that there's a test for. And that's something that there's, you know, a clinically proven treatment for because it's a bacterial illness. And with these diagnoses that we use in mental health, they're they're not as reliable or valid. There's not tests for them. But the utility of these diagnoses is that they they point to a symptom cluster that we can say, okay, this is what we're working on. This is what we want to see improve. And yet it's the improvement part really seems to be missing. It's it's almost as if there's like a, a thriving or a reveling in the identification as ill. And I wonder for the young people who are doing this, how much of it is because they haven't actually faced the real consequences yet of living with a debilitating illness. You know, if, you, if you're still being taken care of by your parents, it, it, as sick as, as it is, it's almost all fun and games until you're actually in a life or death situation. And yet these, you know, they're coming right up to the edge of those life and death situations with the rise in hospitalizations. So one of the things I want to do with you today is talk about what is mental health and what are the misconceptions about mental health that are prevalent in this explosion of mental illness? Such a thought-provoking question, and uh, it obviously can get quite complex, and we can go into many directions. But let, I want to first just uh, comment on you know these recent trends that we have seen in society with particularly adolescents, and they are certainly driven by social media and exposure to mental health influencers. There is no doubt that we are in a culture right now where there is an incentive base to identify as an oppressed class. And we can talk about, you know, what is the general purpose of that? Um, for me, you know, there's, there's political ideology and, and, and quest for power, and then we get caught up in that as, as a society. What can start with as, you know, positive intentions, which is to bring more attention to those who might be struggling, has now become somewhat of a social contagion effect, where we see young people who are in a vulnerable period of just development, and we've traditionally always known that it's a very vulnerable period of transition and adaptation where there are emotional struggles and biological changes. And you combine that with uh, a search for an identity or a community. And you see many people identifying with DSM diagnoses without a real understanding that these DSM diagnoses don't have strong scientific validity and re reliability. They'd probably be astounded by how many of these diagnoses were originally developed and how they continue to explode with each new diagnostic statistical manual. But really, they are just a cluster of symptoms or a construct with not really having it anything other than just uh, a category in order to define, rather than kind of a dimension of where people might be, be struggling. I do not like using the word mental illness because it has the connotation that it is uh, something that is biologically ingrained with a biological treatment. And that's certainly not 
uh, realistic. That's, that's not evidence-based. But we've been conditioned as a society to think about our mental health in terms of something similar to that of diabetes, uh, a medical condition that is outside of our control. And that is propaganda. That is marketing propaganda by the pharmaceutical industry to sell their drugs. Mm -hmm. And they have been wildly successful at doing that. We just see extraordinary rises in people taking psychiatric drugs for what traditionally would be just normal adaptations to stress. Just what is living, you know, the, all the challenges that exist in being a human being. And you can, you can date this back to the early 90s when they tried to identify that mental illness was related to chemical imbalances as a way to support the use of these newly developed drugs. And they had the ability to use, use media and advertising to communicate that to the general public. So we have generations now who believe that when you feel a certain way, it's related to a chemical imbalance in the brain. That has been debunked uh, for decades now. There's no psychological medical organization will, will suggest that at all. What were just theories at a particular time, further evidence and research has shown there's no differences in neurochemicals related to serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine for somebody who has schizophrenia or clinical depression or anxiety. There are no change, there are no differences. But yet these drugs themselves are, are kind of targeted to create a chemical imbalance. And what is unfortunate in society is that we see younger people wanting to turn to these drugs as almost a validation that they are different, a validation of their struggles. And it's reinforced in kind of this victim culture that we, we live in. And there are social benefits to actually obtaining that diagnosis. And that is a dramatic shift in our, our modern day culture from even 15 years ago. So you talk about how there's a lack of validity in these diagnoses and that there's really kind of overblown or exaggerated notion of whether there's any reality to their, the biochemical component and and I'm hearing in that to the the permanence right because when you when you liken it to a condition like diabetes I mean a person especially with type 1 diabetes now type 2 diabetes can evolve through lifestyle and and can be prevented through lifestyle as well but you know something like type 1 diabetes is it's a horrible condition to have to live with and it's a lot of lifestyle management, but medication is is going to be necessary because your body just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And I, I think you draw an interesting corollary there that people are thinking about mental illness or diagnosis as this chemical imbalance that that is likened to diabetes. And that means it's lifelong, right? And, and that reminds me of a training I was in. I worked for this large company, group practice, and they, we would have these trainings by psychiatrists on, you know, what we need to know as therapists to work with psychiatrists. And there was this one where he was showing these slides about like the efficacy of this treatment with major depression versus um, persistent depression and how it was like, well, after so many months of this treatment, uh, people no longer had symptoms of major depression. And I remember raising my hand going, wait a minute, the, the definition of major depression is that it's less than two years. Like you can be diagnosed with major depression if you've had it for two weeks. And if if you've had two years or more without two months symptom-free, then that's persistent depression. 
But if you're saying the diagnosis was major depression, that means the diagnosis was a time-limited depressive episode. And if you're saying that this treatment correlated with them no longer meeting criteria a year later, how how are you going to say that they wouldn't have not met the criteria a year later if they hadn't gone through the treatment? So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the permanence of these conditions. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have randomized clinical control trials is that you want to be able to have a, a group that is not provided any treatment at all or just kind of wakeful watching. And uh, traditionally, uh, depressive episodes are just that. They're episodes, they're short-term, and they're in response to setbacks in life, real legitimate challenges. And those who had had prolonged or persistent depressive episodes were a very, very small percentage of, uh, of the population. You can look back in history, the word was melancholy. Someone would be in melancholy for an extended period of time. And there's probably some evolutionary benefit to that experience that we could get into. But to think about it as a disease from a disease model has no scientific validity at all. And you're exactly right. For the large majority of the people who go through an, an episode, it is going to be short-lived. It's going to resolve itself by a number of factors. One, the problems that they were facing were resolved. They began to face them and overcome them. Um, and the circumstances changed, or they changed the way that they coped and adapted to what was going on in their life. So they're, I'm a big believer in that our emotions are evolutionarily adaptive. They're not symptoms of an illness. That's, that's only a new concept in modern times to serve the, the pharmaceutical industry. And when you think about your emotions in that way, and you believe and you understand that life will bring about its trials, its tribulations, and its challenges as opportunities for you to learn and overcome, then those episodes are short-lived. But through this mass marketing and pseudoscience such as this, I mean, you, that there's a reason why these drug trials were only six to eight weeks. Um, because they don't want to study them long term. And a lot changes in six to eight weeks when you have clinical contact. And even then, we don't see really any changes between the, the, the placebo group and the, the medicine group. And that's really concerning to me because we know, and we know more now over, over the past 10 to 15 years, because there's been populations of people who've been on these drugs for, for quite some time, 15, even 20 years when they were studied for only six to eight weeks and we're seeing really negative health effects. But to your point is that the majority of situations are going to resolve themselves on, on their own. And you can set up clinical trials and you can set up research in order to show that a drug has an effect when it actually does not. You bring up a couple of important points I want to come back to. One is you said emotions are evolutionarily adaptive. And you talked about how persistent depression lasting more than two years is actually pretty rare. And I started thinking about what is the evolutionary advantage of developing melancholy, right? Yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure that, that there's solid evidence that it's it's an adaptive state when a person is truly trapped in in circumstances because i mean there's many reasons we can go into a depressive state right there's grief loss um doesn't have to be loss to death could be loss of capacity changes in one's personal life uh and 
adjusting to the seasons of life needing to slow down, right? Sometimes I think that depression is kind of a sign that you're doing too much. I know for me personally, my health is pretty delicate and anytime I overextend, I'll get sick or injured. And it's like life's way of saying, hey, this is not the pace that you are meant to move at. I think sometimes depression slows us down as a messenger that there's other parts of ourselves that we need to take into consideration. But depression is associated with feelings of powerlessness and low self-esteem, right? And so, of course, if you're in a situation that contributes to that, then that's an adaptive response. If you're in an abusive marriage or your employment situation is emotionally abusive, right? If you don't see a way out of that situation, or if you don't have the help that you need to get out of that situation, then you're just kind of going to adjust to fit into that situation, which means, yeah, I guess I'm just a worthless piece of crap. And I guess I should just go on doing everything for everyone and I'll never be good enough. It's like, well, yeah, that, that totally suits the situation unless and until something internal or external shifts enough for you to feel like, hmm, I don't need to be stuck here, right? And that's part of the role that therapy can play is helping people see options where they might have been kind of surrendered to their circumstances. And I think persistent depression, you know, where I tend to see that is when something has just really gone on for a long period of time, you know, started in childhood with a neglectful household, it extended into the marriage and the employment situation. And it's like, yeah, if, if an organism has adapted to an environment where it's just a nutrient poor environment and where there's no room for growth, then it's going to stay small and scraggly. And, and that's, that's what we do psychologically. So, I mean, that, that all makes sense to me. I love this evolutionary view of mental stuff. And, and you also talked about placebo, right? In clinical trials. And something that's been on my mind with placebo recently is that we can utilize the placebo effect to our advantage, while being fully aware of it. You know, I think this is the value, at least from a scientific or atheist point of view, the value of prayer, the value of any religious practice, you know, however orthodox or pagan it may be, you know, things like astrology and tarot and crystals, any of these things, if you imbue them with meaning, the, the significance being that this is going to help me grow, this is going to lift my spirits, and, and you see possibility in it, then you're use, utilizing the placebo effect to your, to your benefit. And where I have a problem is, is with kind of quack medicine capitalizing on the placebo effect without being transparent that it's doing so. So like homeopathy, for instance. Yeah, if you believe that that little pill can make a difference, even though there's nothing active in it, why not utilize your power of belief in conjunction with something that actually does have power or something that doesn't cost you any money, something that you can make up out of thin air, an imaginary friend. And and I think when we look at the the power of belief that is associated with placebo, then it opens up more options because then there's all kinds of things we can do in, in therapy and there's skills we can teach our clients to utilize at home that are going to be just as effective. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. So when we talk about persistent and chronic depression, you are referring to somebody who has developed kind of this chronic hopelessness. And we have studies on learned helplessness, the belief that there, you can't change your position in the world and you're just going to face further rejection 
or harm, and that creates a, a depressed state. And so to think about our, our emotional states in terms of something that is, is persistent, chronic, and outside of our control, like a medical illness, is associated with more chronic mental health conditions, more chronic depression. That's why you see the long-term health outcomes of people who turn to psychiatric drugs are more likely to develop this learned helplessness. What I experience is outside of my control. And that's a harmful intervention. We have to understand what is harmful when it comes to mental health treatment. They think they take this drug and it's some wonder drug and it changes the way that they feel. Although it is a psychoactive substance and in the short term it might have some emotional numbing effect, like that's the best that we're going to look for. It's going to dampen down or blunt emotion. No one is going to argue that's what depression is. Depression is very, very complex. Also in modern society, we look at symptoms of other conditions and we just call them depression because we don't know what else is going on. We have chronic health problems in the United States. I was just at, the, at Virginia Beach this past weekend walking on the beach. And the degree of obesity that exists in the United States currently is astounding. And chronic inflammation and gut, back, uh, gut microbiome problems and just you know being overweight and having health-related problems, it's going to lead to other symptoms that are categorized as depression. Fatigue, mm-hmm. you're less active, mm-hmm. you don't feel good in your own body, sleep is impacted. And, and that's another reason for skyrocketing diagnosis of depression is we're taking other medical conditions and then we are labeling them as, as depression without treating what is actually the cause. And it's, it's a lot of lifestyle stuff. It's just very sloppy, isn't it? We, we are going backwards yeah. um, in, in the treatment of mental health conditions. We're not evolving. We're not improving outcomes. We're taking steps backwards. And it's not a science or evidence-based practice. It is... It is pseudoscience, it's pop culture ideas, it's, it's ideology, and we no longer or are not adv- are advancing the field in a way that better isolates and understands the individual and all the factors that would lead someone to be depressed and respecting that complexity. We're in a fast food style of treatment, which is really similar to getting a McDonald's hamburger. You know, you're getting on a Zoom session with somebody, someone's writing prescriptions of 15 minutes, you're going to your primary care doctors, you're looking for quick fixes. And that's ultimately going to lead you down a path of feeling worse. And so we're not using our experience, our emotional experience and the struggles we're facing to our advantage to be able to face, solve problems, overcome, and even find value in, in struggle. And so when you talk about the power of beliefs, if we're looking at the placebo effect, we know that's powerful. We don't talk about it enough. We know it's so powerful, it cures diseases. That's why we set up randomized clinical control trials. So then when you talk about having strong beliefs, you're talking about the power of, of purpose. So if I get up in the morning and I meditate and then I do some gratitude, and just writing a gratitude journal. The attention and focus of my mind is, what, is on what I have. And then if I set some goals, 
of things I want to accomplish. Think about where my focus and my attention is. In comparison to where we are now in this divisive culture where everyone's trying to get your attention, but in a negative way. They're trying to emotionally provoke you, divide you, and industries are trying to take your, your attention is now a commodity. If I can own your attention and I can make you feel insecure, I can make you feel bad about yourself or provoke your anger, then I have your attention more and I also have a product to sell you. That's where we are right now in modern day culture. And there should be no question about why people are more and more miserable. Mm-hmm. Taking responsibility for your mental health means <clears throat> making educated decisions about how you navigate a culture of information overload, knowing that the apps and websites are designed and the algorithms are designed to play on your emotions because that's what keeps your attention captivated. It's like you want to go in prepared and and I see it creating really negative mental health outcomes for people when there's a lot of time spent on social media just getting outraged by their own bubble chamber. It's like, well, okay, let's let's put on your thinking cap here and and look at what it is that you're interacting with and how it's designed to work. And then remember that you're in the driver's seat and you've got your own health to manage and your own mental state to manage. And those things that you talked about Roger, of your gratitude practice, your meditation practice, those are all personal things that that you can do, that anyone can do to take responsibility for creating a state of mental wellness. Um, you also talked about finding value in struggle, which is a really important part of it. And you, you said something I want to go back to about physical health problems. I mean, there are a number of physical health conditions that can create symptoms of depression. And actually, when I say symptoms of depression, I mean, there's a ton of overlap between most DSM diagnoses, right? So brain fog. Well, if you call it brain fog, it sounds like depression. But when you call it difficulty concentrating, it sounds like ADHD, right? And and when you include the restlessness, well, depending on how you phrase the restlessness, it looks like ADHD or it looks like anxiety. Or if you call it jumpiness, it looks like PTSD, right? And really, we're, we're talking about basic you know, less than optimal states of cognitive functioning. And that could be brain fog. could be normal. Sorry? Ranges of normal. Yeah. Yeah. This is is the the struggle here, Stephanie, is the wording is purposely vague Mm -hmm. and can be widely applied to almost any human being at any perfect, at any time. You know, define brain fog. Well, somebody might experience lapses in memory or um, can be fatigued or tired. Any human being can identify. I'm I'm drinking coffee right now, Mm -hmm. right? Why am I drinking coffee? Well, I had some brain fog after lunch today. And if I have a, a, a latte, it enhances my focus. Well, what does that mean? How do I make sense of that as as a human being? Well, I maybe I have ADHD. Maybe it's a post-COVID symptom. Maybe I have a post-afternoon lunch disorder. You know, everyone's looking for a label to define Mm -hmm. their experience. Mm -hmm. And the more you look for labels to define your experience, the more you're you're going inward in this judgmental, self-reflective stance where you're focusing in on yourself and you are taking symptoms or situations or experiences in your life and you're, you're assigning something to it. Doesn't mean it's real. 
It doesn't mean it's a disease, but the way you actually think about it can have a, another reaction, another response. That's why when you talk about just like meditative practice or mindfulness practice, it's so valuable because you get people out of their heads. There's not enough stillness that exists um, for us in, in, in our lives right now. It's constant distraction. And paradoxically, the more you fixate on the label, in some cases, the less you actually understand what you need to understand, what would be beneficial to understand in that moment about what you're experiencing. So when I first brought up something like brain fog, whatever that might mean to someone, and you talk about it being on the range of normal or a bell curve, let's say someone's really struggling with, you know, pretty pretty low end of cognitive functioning and they've been going through it for six months and they're having a hard time at work, they're having a hard time at home. We could call that depression. We could call it this, that, or the other, right? Depending on how the patient and the clinician are examining it together and who's to say how much validity there is. But but have medical conditions been ruled out? Because there are so many that can cause it, right? You said it could be a post-COVID symptom. I'm dealing with that right now. I have long COVID. It's been three months and my, my nervous system hasn't rebalanced yet. I think I'm dealing with some dysautonomia, you know? And there are, you know, I've worked with people who had something like undiagnosed sleep apnea for years. And sleep apnea will absolutely cause every symptom in the book, because sleep is one of those foundational building blocks of health, the health of the body and the mind. And if your brain isn't allowed to rest and regenerate properly at night, then all of your cognitive and emotional faculties will be impaired. And when I see something like that, or something like, you know, an undiagnosed uh, nutrient deficiency, such as an iron or B vitamin deficiency or D or, you know, any of these nutrients that can, that are essential building blocks for mental health. When I see that, and then I see that someone's been in therapy for years and they're not actually treating the medical condition or the medical condition was never properly evaluated. One of my biggest concerns is not just the time lost, but, but the sense of identity built around being a person with depression, a person with anxiety, a person who can't function, a person who gets overly emotional at work and then feels embarrassed about it. You know, whatever narratives have been built around this. And, and I see yeah. that even in people who aren't in the whole TikTok self-diagnosis mental illness as identity cult. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, you can see that with an older generation of person who might not have that same exposure. Um, I think that's the that's the like value and importance of evidence based medicine. If you're tr if you're treating symptoms or identifying symptoms without understanding the cause, then you are at risk of of pro providing poor ineffective treatment. And from a psychological perspective, you're shaping a person's reality and identity. You know what's what's interesting today with younger generations is they don't use the word sad anymore. They use the word depressed, yeah. right? And and language is really important in shaping the perception of your experience. So depression is, is now widely considered a disease. It's considered something that is uh, serious and causes serious impairment. So if any time you feel sad, you use the word depressed, you're communicating to people around you that you are, a de you are depressed, you are sick, you are ill, and now you're getting a, a, a reaction that is can kind of congruent to the severity of that. And that often leads somebody to go to a doctor, maybe a 15-minute 
discussion and a prescription. And instead of being able to normalize in our culture the full range of human emotions, and then when somebody really is struggling with a symptom, we take the time to investigate it in an empirical way and we use all our technology to be able to try to understand what is going on. I mean, you get into some unfortunate directions where you, you come across the limitations of our healthcare system and doctors to be able to spend you know, time with their patients. And so it does get flooded back into those who work in outpatient mental health to be able to get to know your clients and be able to understand the complex factors that might be leading to why they're feeling that way. And if you're not investigating all those lifestyle factors, like you don't have a really strong background in, be- in doing behavioral work, like self-monitoring sleep or looking at diet. And that's, that's without us even talking to the, ex- the number of toxins that we're exposed to on a daily basis with plastics and detergents and so forth. But if, if you don't, if your mind doesn't work that way and you're not trained to be able to investigate all that, you're going to see everything like, like a, um, you know, a hammer sees everything as a nail. And then you're going to just assume and label everything to be related to whatever lens you look, you examine it to be. If you're psychodynamic, you might look at it as origins within, you know, your family environment and key relationships. If you're, you know, cognitive and behavioral, maybe you're examining you know, the way that their thinking is influencing behavior and other things, and you just limit yourself. And that is mental health treatment in 2022. It, going into mental health treatment, seeing the wrong person could actually take you down a road where you worsen. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise. Yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. 
All right, now back to the show. Yeah, you brought up a really important point about how young people use the word depressed instead of sad. And my mind started going with that, like, yeah, and and they don't say they're worried. They say they're anxious. I remember a few years ago when I started noticing this trend. I mean, at first I was just so impressed with young people. I was like, wow, I'm meeting all these young people who are wise beyond their years. I mean, they're interested in psychology. They know all of these terms for their mental health that I didn't know at their age. They're just so insightful. And then I started learning about the youth culture and and the widespread use of those terms. And more and more, I started asking, well, all these kids are coming to me saying, I have depression, I have anxiety. And it's like, okay, well, tell me what that means. And, and that's really what we need. We need an emotional vocabulary. It's like, okay, instead of saying you're anxious, can you say that you're worried? Okay, then we can talk because what are you worried about? Then we can talk about what's on your mind, right? And if we understand what you're worried about and how you're going about worrying, and what's happening in your body and when you're worrying, then we can get to problem solving because we can assess are any of those worries legitimate concerns where your mind's trying to tell you something that like this needs your attention. This, this is, this is a problem that needs a solution. And if so, well, good, you have me now we can work on it. Let's talk through it. Let's see what needs attention here. Or, you know, is this worry maybe, overblown or is it something that's out of your control? Well, then there's a different way of coping with that. You know, there's a way of kind of seeing it for the small thing that it is or seeing it as out of your control and learning to focus on what you can control. When we have an emotional vocabulary for what we're actually talking about, then we can go from there. But these labels, they're just kind of these places where people get stuck. And and the sad things is it's like, it's like this this epidemic of Munchausen and malingering where by taking these ordinary human experiences and and maybe some especially bad human experiences. I mean, let's give young people credit. They lived through a pandemic. That's terrible. It's, it's terrible becoming of age, going through a time in life when peers are really important, getting out and experiencing the world is really important and your brain's developing and you're just stuck behind a screen for two years. I mean, that's hard. That's, that is a real experience that you need support with and it needs to be acknowledged that it, that it's very abnormal, but you know, taking experiences within the range of normal human experiences to unique situations that deserve some TLC and building an identity around them, well, then you're kind of ingraining it for life and you're, you're setting mental habits into place that ensure that the problem will be there in the future. Whereas I think the point of diagnosis is to say that this is what we're working on. Yeah, um, almost like a, a conceptualization over, over a label. When, it, when you work with a conceptualization, you're understanding the person and all the unique factors that are influencing the way they're responding. When you take a label, you're, you're putting somebody in a category and you're limiting and simplifying them and you're putting them in a, in a large group of people. Stories here that I think are relevant. So in the school system, there's probably nothing more normal than being anxious before you have to do a school presentation. Or there's nothing more normal than having to meet new new friends if you're in a new school. Or if you're, you know, if you're a high achiever and you want to, you know, make the sports team or you want to be class president or you want to be in all honors classes. So all these things are just normal developmental challenges that exist. So now when you use the language like I'm anxious or I'm depressed, 
Now you get a reaction or response from your environment. And in the school environment, it's a fear-based culture because they're afraid of, of lawsuits. And that fear of litigation drives over-involvement with things like IEPs. And you're over-diagnosing or labeling kids. Instead of seeing things as developmental challenges, when you start looking at it as a medical condition, you're now treating it as such. So what is the response then to somebody who is anxious about doing a class presentation? Well, they create an alternative assignment that kind of avoids having to do that presentation because now that's what they're communicating. And so they, they've learned that when I feel anxious, it's, it's something's dangerous and then I need to escape from it. And if I acknowledge it as such, then other people will respond and they will in turn help me kind of avoid that situation and navigate that situation. And that doesn't set somebody up well in life to meet the challenges that exist, not in relationships, not in school, not in the workforce and not in creating a life worth living. And that is the dangers of over-medicalization and how we are taking these labels and we are creating a disability culture through them. It's so sad. It's, it's the opposite of the support that people need because really the support that so many people need in, in facing these circumstances is you can do it. You know, you just need some coaching. You just need people to believe in you and encourage you and then scaffold the development of new skills. So that scaffolding the development of new skills can come from parents, teachers, therapists, other support figures. Yeah, like you're saying, stage fright is, it's the human condition, it's the norm. The only people who don't get nervous when they're in a position like that are either people who are you know, where, where there's something very uniquely different about them, like maybe they have that 1% of the population sociopath type brain that doesn't experience fear the same way the rest of us do, or they've just had a lot of practice. And this is where I want to come back to that idea that mental health is not something to take for granted and just assume it should be there. And if it's not there, well, then you're sick and then you deserve this label and you deserve these accommodations. No, it's like you you have to cultivate skills and you can cultivate skills. Unfortunately, there are other people who have cultivated those skills who have learned a thing or two. And so I, I find some of my work in therapy with, you know, especially people who are struggling with chronic depression and low self-esteem and a lot of negative self-talk is, is sometimes I do take that role of coach of like, no, you can do this. Difficult does not mean impossible. And so much of where you're at in life is just an accumulation of habits. You've got some good habits that you take for granted because there are structures in place in your life that you can rely on because you've been upholding those structures. You keep your house clean. That's a thing you don't worry about. Or you have a good relationship with your spouse. That's a thing you don't worry about. Well, great. You have some good habits in place in those departments. But the you know habit of beating yourself up, the habit of procrastinating for months on end on doing something really basic for yourself, those are habits too. And you're here right now because those habits have been repeated. Those habits of mind have been repeated thousands of times. We can help you turn that around. and But we're not going to do it by saying, I can't. You yeah. know, like y- you need you need that pep talk from the outside sometimes and you need to find that inner voice that says this is normal or even if this isn't normal, this is just where I'm at right now. This is my version of the human condition in this moment. But the next moment is the next moment. It's a moment that's never happened before. It's a moment that can be different. Yeah. you. you what's interesting, we were, I was talking to some colleagues recently that for the first time that we are experiencing that something just like what you would say 
which I, you know, I interpret as motivational and encouraging and instilling hope and supporting somebody. Right now, there's a percentage of people who would take offense to that. As, as if you are invalidating their identity and their disease, that they want to hold on to the fact that they're a depressed person, that I have anxiety and I can't do these things. That's easy for you to say because you don't have my depression. You don't have my anxiety. So I am incapable of doing these things. And in any way that you suggest that this can be a, a temporary condition, something that's episodic, that there's a... There's steps and a plan in place to overcome it. They're offended by it. And that is that attachment to that label. That's the dangerous consequences that exist of the ideology in our culture right now. Because whether you see it on social media or you even see it in your, your office, if, if you're not treating that person as, as if they're disabled, then you are invalidating their, their diagnosis and their experience here's what I'll give those people. Here's where I'll meet them halfway. I'm, I'm a bit out of shape right now because I got COVID three months ago and have yet to fully recover. <laughs> and I, I know what it feels like to be more fit than this. And if I were to go to a trainer and they were to try to start me off bench pressing 100 pounds, I might feel the same way. I might be like, hey, you don't understand how I feel. That's That's not fair. That's not possible for me. Why are you imposing your capacities onto me, right? But but I don't think that's what anybody would do. That's that's not what any decent trainer would do, is they'd start off assessing how much can I lift and then assign just a little bit more than I can do. You know, give me give me the workouts that are gonna have my heart pumping and where I'm like, okay, I can't do another one. And then you know what? The next week, add a couple pounds or a couple reps. That's how strength training works. And maybe one day I, I can bench a hundred or maybe that's not my goal, but 50 is fine. And, and I think really that our, our role as mental health clinicians is like that. It's, you know, we, we assess wh- where is their capacity at today and we respect that they got here because they were doing the best with what they knew and what they had, but now they're here with us and we have more tools. And then we give them the correct weight increment, right? And if there's just like, oh, I can't, that's too heavy. Well, okay, maybe we start with a lighter weight increment. So I, I work with people on this all the time and it's it's helpful for people to hear it. You know, if someone is struggling to get out of the house for a walk, I still believe they're fully capable of getting out of the house for the walk. I'm still holding in mind the vision where they're going for a walk every day like it ain't no thing. But if right now, they're in this state of kind of the atrophy of those mental muscles where going for a walk feels really heavy. Then we talk about, okay, well, what does it feel like to do some stretches in the morning just to move your body, right? What does it feel like to have an alarm go off every hour that reminds you to stand up and walk around the house? You know, it's whatever those baby steps are, it's just about taking that next step and not getting into a defeatist mentality. Yeah, ultimately, I do believe even those strong reactions are are fear based, and and they're coming out of out from a place of they don't really believe that they're going to be able to met, meet the expectations that you are establishing for them in a therapy, and so there is some function I think to that that response and just maintaining their own kind of self worth and value at that point. 
And I think the the success rate in in therapies and why we see like relationships are so important in in therapies is because the the person needs to be understood and you have to understand how they think, why they think, given the circumstances and history in which they grew up in. And that's what makes effective psychotherapy much different in comparison to, you know, those psychotherapies that are rather short term um, and and unfortunately drive people into kind of like a medical model where you're you're just on the drug and you're just going through your, you know, you're you're establishing your week and talking about day to day what you're going through. I think a really good psychotherapy can both validate a person's challenges and difficulties, but then see what they're going through as something that they're capable of overcoming. So that thinking about things in that terms of that adaptive means of of responding to, to challenges. So you can validate, you can support, and then you do have to have early success. If you don't have early success in the gym and, and, and you feel like that trainer doesn't understand what your capabilities are, you're going to be pushed too hard, you're going to be too sore, you're going to get injured, you're going to drop out, you're not going to, to be back. So there's so many components, I think, to effective psychotherapy, but they include in really understanding the perspective of where that client comes from. And the only way I think you can do that is if there's active self-monitoring that exists in a therapy session. I tell my clients, like, if you think just coming, sitting in front of me once a week is going to change all these problems, uh, you're going to be really, really disappointed. I'm not that powerful. You can't sit in front of me, disclose emotionally what you're going through, and then expect anything to change. Therapy has to be a very active, goal-oriented, skill-based approach where we work collaboratively together. I have to understand you. Yes, there's going to be a, there's going to be plenty of times where there's me just listening and there's emotional support. But if we don't find a way to get an understanding of what you're going through in context day to day, where you're struggling the most, then we're losing out on a lot of valuable information. Because in that 1-hour therapy session, let's face it, they're going to only share with you what they want you to know at that time. And that might mean ignoring some things that just happened over the past week or in their history because either it's painful or it creates shame or it gives you a a different idea of them than who they want you to think that they are. And so I think therapy has to be very, very goal-oriented and something that's done on a day-to-day approach. And like we have to think about transforming mental health treatment in that way. We have a comprehensive dialectical behavior therapy program here. And as you probably know, there's coaching calls are involved in DBT. And coaching calls are 15 minutes, and they're used to help support and and coach the client to respond to what they're going through in a new way based on the skills that are being taught in our skills training sessions. And I'll tell you what, I'll have a greater effect in 15 minutes on the phone with a client in the moment they need it than six therapy sessions combined. And so we can't just look at effective mental health treatment in the traditional one-hour session that has always existed. It's so arbitrary when you think about it. Why 45 to 60 minutes therapy session? Why not three days a week, two hours? You know, why not 15-minute coaching calls here? We have to open our minds about the paradigm if we're going to shift the way we think about it because what people need is not always going to fit just that one-hour therapy session. Yeah, yeah, you remind me of a session I had the other day with 
to keep it really vague, someone who's been procrastinating for a long time on something important to them. And I'd said in the previous session, I think we should do it together and do a little exposure therapy. And so I had them bring the thing that they kept putting off and read it out loud and and just, okay, what's coming up for you right now? What are what thoughts are going through your head? What emotions? Because then I'm actually getting an inside view of what is the actual blockage where when I'm not around, this person looks at this thing they need to do and just completely shuts down. Right. Yeah. And then and then I coach them through it. And I I don't practice DBT, so I don't do coaching calls, but I I think about expanding the range of what's possible in and out of, of therapy and giving help where it's needed. I've also thought about an idea and you can tell me what you think of this or my actually listeners, <laughs> anyone listening to this, email me feedback. I'd love to know what you think of this idea because all of my podcast conversations are, well, they're conversations, they're interviews so far because I do better when I'm talking to someone else. But I've been thinking about recording some episodes that are just directly coaching the listener through taking action. So something like getting out for a walk, right? We know that unless you have some kind of physical limitation that makes walking contraindicated, that walking is a thing that's accessible to most people most of the time that's going to lift your spirits. It's going to be good for your physical and mental health. It's just a no-brainer that you should walk when you can, right? And yet a lot of people struggle to do something as simple as getting out for a walk. So I was thinking of doing almost like a guided meditation where you listen to this episode and I'm like, all right. You're thinking about going for a walk, but you're feeling that dread. All right, what's that emotion that's getting in the way? All right, now let's think about why do you want to get out for a walk and then just guiding them through taking those steps. So listeners, let me know what you think of that idea if you want me to make that episode. Um, and Roger, maybe you can kind of pick up here with, um, tell us more about that DBT coaching and where you find people really need help overcoming hurdles in real time. Yeah, first of all, I love your idea. Uh, I'm definitely in support of it and would probably utilize it myself in, in certain moments. We all need that motivation. And we're social creatures too. So sometimes it's just that like you, you pop in your earbuds and, and you go for your walk and you feel like someone is on that journey with you can be very helpful, restorative. Uh, but back to dialectical behavior therapy. Dialectical behavior therapy is a more intensive outpatient treatment. Decades of, of research support that is for people who have what we'll call multiple presenting problems related to emotion dysregulation. So uh, they tend to experience their emotions very, very intensely with a slower return to baseline. And that could lead to problems with substances or self-injury, impulsive behaviors, uh, chronic suicidality, eating problems, and Problems in relationships, because relationships are challenging and difficult, and if you're very emotionally sensitive and you experience them intensely, you know, you can be hurt very deeply, and how you react to that hurt can blow up relationships. So DBT skills training is a series of modules that include mindfulness, emotion regulation skills, distress tolerance skills, and interpersonal effectiveness skills. And those who are in our treatment program they go through two hours of weekly skills. First hour is homework review where you're learning from each other how you're applying the skills. In the second hour, there is a new skill that's being taught. And they have the availability for coaching calls. All my dialectical behavior therapy clients have my phone number and they can text me. I'm in need of coaching. And it's usually before they want to cut, self-injure, maybe 
use substances or binge and purge. They're highly, uh, you know, activated. And in the past, they would respond in a certain way that's very self-destructive. It could be, you know, they just had a, a breakup or a fight with a loved one. And they want to lash out or say or do things that would ultimately push that person away. So they, they're trained to stop, text me, I'm in need of coaching. And I, you call back and, and you kind of quickly understand what's going on. And then you talk about the skill that could be used. And then for most of the time, I have them follow up in a period of time later. And you get them then to learn to recognize and observe what they're feeling and knowing they're at risk of doing something that can have long-term consequences. And they learn a new way to respond to that. It's, it's building new habits and building new skills. And, you know, we're getting people to change, eliminate self-injury and keeping people out of a hospital and no longer taking su suicide attempts and improving relationships. And I find it very, very effective in some of the most meaningful work that, that I do and proud of my, my practice because we provide that. And we're the only group in our region that provides this full comprehensive treatment. So, you know, I, I think as a model, I think it needs to be more widely available to, to people. I love how you broke that down. And I love that you were able to explain who DBT is really good for without using a diagnostic label because those labels aren't precise and they can contribute to stigma. And what you did really is describe the actual experience of someone with, you know, what we could call that symptom cluster, what it is that they're having a hard time with and why, and then what's going to help, what's going to practically lead them from there. So you described the four components of DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, mindfulness, and interpersonal effectiveness. And then you do this combination of the therapy, the groups, the skill building, and then helping people implement things when they need them, which seems to me like appropriate scaffolding, right? If, if someone is really having difficulty in multiple areas of life, just kind of holding it together, maintaining jobs, maintaining relationships, maintaining safety, then there's more scaffolding necessary of skills that were missing, skills that were maybe never obtained in their early environment. And that's where you come in and you can help them implement those tools where they really need them. And eventually they're not going to need you for that so much anymore. But I think it's it's encouraging that you know, there are these methods like DBT and people like you who have experience helping people successfully with them dealing with what you could call really severe conditions, right? I mean, the type of person who needs this intensity of therapy that you offer is someone who has been a risk to themselves and others, someone who who has some, you know, real like foundational elements of life that are on the line. And if you're able to give tools so that someone with that symptom cluster, let's say at 25, is stable and fairly happy at 30, then there's really no reason that people who are struggling with less should be condemned to lifelong illness. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. 
We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So I wanted to pick back up on the topic of mental health and get real basic, real elementary for a moment, actually defining mental health. I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious to hear yours, Roger. When I think about mental health, I think about some corollaries with physical health. So for example, a healthy mind is one that is both strong and flexible, one that has vitality and energy, and one that is creatively expressive and inspired. Those are a few qualities I think of, of a healthy mind. I also think of the importance of healthy relationships. And as you were mentioning before, the ability to derive meaning from struggle, which I think is part of the strength component, right? When I say a healthy mind is a strong mind, I mean one that when faced with some kind of obstacle can kind of gear up and resource itself and and think it through. How would you define what makes for a healthy mind? Yeah, I don't want to limit it to just mind because then we, that's a component, I think, of, a, of our mental health. And because we use that word mental, obviously that we're, we're limiting that to like how we think and what goes up in our mind. Mm. But the human experience is, is one that is mind, body, soul, action. I love your word flexibility because um, what is inevitably going to happen in everyone's lifetime is you're going to have to face emotional pain, struggle, loss, death, challenges, rejections, and potentially in a traumatic situation, uh, illness. Living life is very difficult, right? It's painful. And how we flexibly respond to those events really does, I think, determine the quality of the life that we do have. And you mentioned some very important components, the ability or willingness to love and receive love, to develop a community, connection, friendships, which gives us experience and camaraderie and support and being able to share in life's moments. You're talking about the connection with our own physical well-being, our ability to move our body and engage because physical health and mental health are very connected. I think the flexibility that exists in being able to respond to adverse events and and being able to continue to move forward around resilience. I do believe we have a, everyone has a purpose. And maybe that's the spiritual aspect of, of me, but I do see life's challenges as opportunities to learn. And I think people who view it that way have better relationships, stronger relationships, They see the pain and struggles that exist in those relationships as opportunities and they don't see them as like fixed situations where, you know, they can never get better. And I think that's unfortunately one of the negative consequences of viewing things from such a limited perspective that we don't view our relationships, our own mental health or how we feel or experience at any given moment as potential challenges that have to be overcome in order to achieve the life that we were meant to to live. And so it's so difficult to define mental health because life is difficult. It's complex. And we have to normalize that. The, The more that you simplify 
what it means to live and how you feel, you're, you're, further, you're getting further and further away from what actually is reality. And I, I do believe that um, there, there is value in having a culture that is connected to spirituality or religion or community, something that's bigger than, than you. Ultimately, human beings are going to feel quite empty if your life is only about your own pleasure. And that's the, that's the challenges of living in modern capitalistic society when so many, so many situations are really to sell something and to uh, elevate one's own pers- persona for some power. And that in itself, I think, creates r- uh, vulnerability and risk for somebody. I've never, I don't know about you, but I don't find that many people who are really living a good life who are constantly focused on themselves whether it's their vanity, uh, what they're getting or what they're not getting. And, the, you know, the Western culture, United States way of thinking about mental health can, unfortunately, in that pop culture mindset, move people in that direction. You hear words like, take care of you, focus on you, it's got to be about you. And I think ultimately that's the wrong direction for life. Now, do you have to be aware of your needs? It is your life. And if, if you're not being fulfilled in certain areas like a relationship or a friendship or you're being harmed or you're not feeling like you're serving your purpose in your work or in other areas of life where you're serving, we'll, we'll certainly want you to have attention to that. But we don't want you to think that the, the road to happiness is focusing on, only on yourself because it's going to be very difficult for you to really connect and feel like your life has value in that way. And so I want to take that, that term flexibility and I want to respect how complex it is to feel good in this life. And even when you're doing everything right, right, you're serving purpose, you're exercising, you're eating healthy, you're nurturing the relationships that exist, you're meditating every day, life's going to bring you pain because that's what life is. And so there has to be that acceptance component around it. And I want to resist any notion that tries to simplify our our mental health and simplify its approach to improving your mental health because that is a road to hell. One of the things you mentioned was being available to be loved in addition to loving, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that connects to flexibility, because I think for a lot of people that's hard. You know, a lot of the, the folks who come to me for help tend to be kinder to others than towards themselves. And you bring up a good point in that being overly focused on yourself is is also not beneficial. It just leads to more rumination, self-absorption, navel-gazing. I think one of the qualities of a healthy mind, a healthy life is curiosity. You know, having having that outward focus, that interest in other people. But a word that's really coming to mind for me right now as part of the picture of health is availability. Like I think about how do you know that your body is healthy and fit? Well, it's that it's fit for whatever comes up. Your body is ready for you know, chasing your kids around the park, carrying in the groceries, whatever life might throw at you, you're available for the task. And really, I think about so much of what you're saying in terms of being available. So the parts of our self-care that are self-focused, 
you know, identifying what it is that you need and building in those daily habits, the meditation, the self-reflection, exercise, and all of those things is part of preparing yourself to be available to the day, to what life brings you, to what challenges or meaningful work or people in need might come to you. And and I think it's easy to forget that when people are caught in rumination, right? When yeah. when they're in those cycles of, you know, you could call it depression or anxiety, but but where the mind is just hung up on things, there's like a, a closedness to the world, a lack of receptivity to what's happening in the moment and an inability to be curious and connected with it. And really that's that's all it takes. Leaving room for uncertainty, leaving room for what's going to happen in the next moment, leaving room for the possibility that the things that you want could come your way, but there's a lot of that that's out of your control or beyond your knowledge. So what do you need to do today to be ready for the life that you want? How do you need to prepare your body, mind, home, actions, work to be available to life, to be available to opportunity? to be available to receiving joy, inspiration, abundance, and to be available for hardship, right? To to know that, yes, there will be, as you said, a certain amount of traumatic events or unexpected events or loss losses that will come to you. And you don't have to spend all your time thinking about that and planning for that. That's not healthy. But but to be able to kind of trust yourself that I'm I'm participating in life, and life is vast and I can expect that it'll it'll break my heart open sometimes, but I'm here for it. Yeah, it's well said. Good points. What I what I love about being a therapist and is a real blessing is that when I'm in my office and I'm working with a client, my attention is completely on them. And so that focused attention on somebody else into trying to serve them is really therapeutic for me personally, because I'm at my worst when I am in my head, when I'm ruminating, when I'm going back into the past, when I'm predicting into the future and then trying to prevent bad things from happening and living in fear. That is when I am at my worst. I feel my worst. So I am, you know, very consistently trying to cultivate practices that allow me to devote my attention into things that are meaningful and purposeful in, in my life. And that could be my family. That could be reading and learning about new things. Could be on a podcast today and being able to meet a new person like you and having this very interesting conversation. It's therapy, it's it's friendships, it's, it's other activities that I think are um, really important to my well-being or entertainment. You know, I wa- watch every, even just sitting down and like getting into a really good show every once in a while and getting out of your head is just really, really important. I just, just got finished watching this show, 1883, which is a prequel to um, Yellowstone. So people might have watched that out there. But this, this show, it's profoundly Im- important in, in the manner of which we reflect on history and see how the hardships and challenges of people. This was frontier individuals as they were like migrating to the West Coast through the Great Plains and trying to build their, their, their families. And the hardships they had to go through and the suffering and the loss, all for something that was greater than them. Um, it was for future generations. It was for freedom. And it's 
incredible in the, in the manner in which it speaks to the relationships and the love and what you're willing to do in order to advance your your own your own family and there's things about the human spirit that are just so important and i think we might lose definitely in the united states there's so much privilege that exists we might lose our perspective about the hardships and challenges that people maybe in other countries or other parts of the world are going through or our ancestors have, have gone through just in order to, to, to immigrate here. And that perspective is, is important because the relative wealth that we have right now and the privilege that exists for all of us leads to a bit of a loss of perspective. It's almost like we as human beings focus on things that have to go wrong. And that's, that's a, certainly not a, a quality that, that leads to sound mental, mental health. It's something like that's very natural to us. Well, we, another way to look at mental health problems is like a mismatch between you know, our evolutionary development and what is modern society. And so our minds are designed to figure out that next problem and to survive. But we have this relative safety that, that exists for most of us, but our minds are still you know, very animalistic and, and they're going to try to figure out all the th- bad things that can happen and try to, to prevent it. And we're also very relational. We grew up and survived in tribes and, and groups. So we care very much about what other people think about us. And so our minds can get caught up on things like that. Are we going to get rejected by the group? Am I going to find a partner? Um, and, you know, who am I in relation to, to other people around me? And the more that you, I think that we uh, disconnect from our relationships, from connection with nature, from purpose, the worst that we're going to feel. I really like what you're saying that this trend that we're concerned about in the young people, it's almost as if everything is a capital T trauma and, mm. and that's an injustice and mm. it's an excuse for dysfunction. And really a lot of what I hear you saying is that, that, that that's completely missing the point of what it is to be a human on planet earth. You know, your generation didn't invent trauma. And in fact, although there are some unique hardships that these younger folks are facing, like coming of age during a pandemic, for instance, that's, that's a real problem. But uh, there are also some ways in which they have it relatively easier. And Really, it's it's the hardships that are what make existence interesting and what give us choices that allow us to build character, that allow us to, you know, to make our own life into an adventure movie of sorts. And sometimes I wonder if, if there's not enough hardship, if, you know, people who've been sheltered haven't had real life or death experiences that really force you to choose because when you're out there, when you're, you know, dealing with the elements that can kill you, you, it, it sparks this will to live and, and you recognize that you can't afford to let yourself be slowed down by whatever's inconvenient at the moment. You know, if, if you're, um, you know, like I'm remembering a time that I was, I was in the middle of a lake on a flotation device with no paddles and it was starting to rain and I was by myself. And it's like moments like that, that you're like, I could be, I could be really scared right now, you know? And I felt myself getting scared. It's like, I can't afford to be scared. How am I going to breathe into this and find excitement in this moment? Right. And then how am I going to get myself out of this situation? 
had to learn to manage that fear and problem solve because I was in a situation that was that was truly scary, that was truly like uh, I'm I'm confronting the elements here and I, I could die of hypothermia if I do nothing, right? And, and I think that those experiences of real contact with the elements and uh, the things that we have when we're outside of, of all the technology that we live in in, in these cities, um, they, they spark in us the will to live and the creativity and the ingenuity that has gotten humanity this far. And, and that story had a fun ending. I, I eventually made it my way to a side of the lake where I met a stranger who befriended me and helped me get back to my campsite. And, you know, my, my own inclination, if, if I could do 50 different things with my life, I think one, one of those paths would be to start like a wilderness therapy camp for, for some of these kids who just need contact with, with the fact that that hardship is this universal element of human life, but that that's where you really get to make it fun. That's where you get to put your unique signature of how am I going to face this hardship? What meaning am I going to derive about it? What stories am I going to live to tell the tales of? This could be a, a podcast episode on its own. Um, you know, the use of the word trauma and how it's thrown around so lightly. You know, I, I think this is a lot of this is about perspective. And I think the you know, the interesting thing about the research on what's called post-traumatic growth is that, you know, this exposure to adverse conditions kind of strengthens you in a way to respond to future situations. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm such a supporter of thinking about our, our, our mental health in a way of pushing people towards overcoming challenges, not avoiding them. And it's why I do a lot of exposure-based, you know, treatments. When it comes to language, language is so important. So you're going to use the word trauma in the same context of like, I'm, it's traumatic when, you know, when my parents were divorced and it's a trauma to be a rape, to, to be a victim of rape or a combat veteran, or it's traumatic because your friend didn't invite you to the party. You know, you use this same word to describe all these situations and there's a trauma-informed kind of movement that exists in, in mental health. And to me, it can be an example of, you know, the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. I think the idea of understanding the role of painful, traumatic, and adverse situations on someone's current functioning is very, very valuable. But that does not mean that everything that is painful or difficult is traumatic. Because now we're, we're distorting what that word actually, actually means. And there is post-traumatic stress. And post-traumatic stress can range in its severity of impairment of functioning. And I don't want to in any way characterize normal, normal stress of living in terms of trauma. Because that further fragilizes people from, a pers from their perspective. Like, listen, if not, if not getting invited to a, a party or being cut from the softball team, if that's traumatic, think about what's going to have to be, you're going to have to face at some point in, in your life that really is traumatic and difficult and painful in a way that supersedes that experience. And so if we don't normalize painful experiences, then we're putting people in positions where their perspective is distorted. And I, I think 
men, when we're on this conversation of, of, of mental health, like, it's like when there's a callus on your hand. You know, that was, that was built there through, through hard work, and, it's, and, and it kind of provides you a thicker skin in the future. And so when new challenges come up, you have this history to reflect back on, I've been through this before, I know I can overcome it. And then those lessons are also communicated to your children, and they should be passed down from generation to generation. If you fragilize people and create a victim culture, you're robbing them of that mentality and that experience and the skills to overcome challenges and view life differently. And I think, unf- unfortunately, I mean, you put, you can, I could get off on a, a tangent on this on a soapbox about how these, these cultural variables are really harming a generation of, of, of kids and young people. Yeah. I get on that same soapbox <laughs> pretty often myself. Um, but let's let's um, let's be practical here. So you mentioned earlier effective treatments, and and really that's what we're after is helping people get better, helping people live more fulfilling lives with realistic expectations and healthy attitudes, and and to be able really to trust themselves to navigate life's hardships without too much fear. So. Talk to me about effective treatments and what helps people become mentally healthy. Yeah, good question. You know, there is a, a wealth of research that, that's coming out of our academic institutions and researchers that I don't think is widely disseminated in the mental health field. Uh, when I hire people on t- into my center and we ask very important questions, just like you just did, I, I want to know about principles. I want to know about guiding principles that are related to you know, human resiliency and how you overcome and how you deal with what are the most common presenting problems like in an outpatient mental health uh, center like ours. So that's gonna be you know, low mood and depressed mood and episodic conditions, someone who is controlled by fear or people who are responding to their emotional experience or adverse events in their lives in very self-destructive ways, such as development of an eating disorder or uh, self-injury or suicide attempts, chronic relationship problems, bulimia. And those who have been exposed to traumatic events and do exhibit impaired post-traumatic stress conditions, how do they recover? So I want to know all those things. And we, I want to be very, very vigilant to what does the research support about those principles. And I think over and over and over again, you continue to get the same kind of guiding principles that are sometimes misrepresented through what we call manual-based therapies. Instead of understanding those as like there are some principles that can be flexibly applied, people rigidly and and, uh, ineffectively apply intervention too early to a label, to a condition. But let's talk about what the principles are. Well, if we're going to support human resiliency and the ability to approach and overcome, we know exposure-based principles work because they create new learning, that we are adaptive as individuals. We have the ability to learn from our experience. We have enough sophisticated technology and fMRI studies to know where learning actually occurs in the brain and from a neurological perspective, what gets activated when exposure to different events. And we have evolved as human beings that we have this very well-developed kind of prefrontal cortex that allows us to problem solve and reflect and um, 
think into the future or reflect back into the past. And that is both a blessing and a curse. And then we also have this very um, reptilian animalistic aspect of our brain where we process a lot of emotion. And so when we think about these effective treatments, we have to have this balance between exposure to that emotional experience because it depends on where someone is in that and in that, in how they cope. There are people who can cope with um, problems in their life through real suppression and avoidance and be cut off from their entire emotional experience and experience physical pain and illness and panic attacks from just emotional avoidance and suppression. And so exposure to that emotion and talking and facing the problems can be therapeutic. In another situation, somebody can be completely dysregulated by their emotions. Their emotions overwhelm them. And in order to regulate their emotions, they turn to problematic behaviors and actions. Maybe they cut themselves, swallow pills, drink alcohol, binge eat or purge. Well, in those situations, we have to have the skills to be able to regulate that emotion. Does exposure still exist? Yes, but now how can you use your advanced skills from how you think to behavioral skills to change your relationship to that emotion? to create new learning around it in order to change that behavior. And if it's a traumatic event or situation, we know everyone has the capacity to heal. And, and we, if someone just went through something that was extremely traumatic and painful, the natural inclination is gonna to be to over-evaluate threats and become hyper-vigilant to threat and want to avoid that memory. And what that does, it impairs our ability to recover and heal because you're in this reptilian survival mode. Everything becomes dangerous and you never process through the details of what happened to you. So they overwhelm you in terms of panic and in nightmares and you restrict your lifestyle. So you no longer do the things you used to do. You don't expose yourself to that world because it's dangerous. So I think effective research supported treatments include all those components. There's a learning, there's a facing, and there's an overcoming with a development of skills to, in order to be able to improve your self-efficacy and respond to your fear or your anger or your distress in new ways. That's the flexibility that, that we were referring to in terms of sound mental health. And unfortunately, Stephanie, I think in reality, there's a small percentage of mental health therapists who know how to do that well and know how to do it in an organized way, in a coherent way, in an empathic way. There's, there's not enough training with these empirically supported principles and ways of measuring the success of your treatment that it turns into this talk therapy that is rather open-ended with psychodynamic principles or just Rogerian talk print therapy principles without the active research-supported engagement. As a therapist, is a hard, hard position to be in. Sometimes you have to push your clients past to where they believe that they can be, they can they can go and what they can do. And you have to do it in such a compassionate kind and you have to communicate so effectively that they understand and they're motivated to do it. And then you create new learning. And if you don't do that in a timely fashion, you are at risk of creating dependence. Dependence on you, the therapist, dependence on the process to cope, while at the same time you're just maintaining that restriction from from life. That's gonna it's gonna breed hopelessness because they're not gonna get better in that environment. They might feel safe. They might not feel they might feel supportive, but they are not creating the life independent upon you. 
And too many people get into the field, unfortunately, just aren't assertive enough and strong enough in their conviction and beliefs and in the scientific literature to say, come with me, I'll guide you, you'll be able to, to do that. And, you know, part of my message is I want to be able to talk about those principles and I want people to, to be able to understand them and how they're applied. Well, that's a really positive vision. In a, in a world full of bad news and information overload and the fetishization of mental health diagnoses and all of these things. Yeah, that, that seems like a really important voice to say, I believe in you. And I think to anyone listening to this who is not a therapist, maybe someone who's in therapy, who's saying that this feels really daunting, you know, that here are these therapists talking about this level of functioning, this level of just tolerating all of life's ups and downs. I mean, I don't want that. It's like, I just want to instill this message of hope that it does feel a lot better at the end of the day. As much as we're saying, yeah, life is full of hardship and we don't want you to avoid that. We want to help you face it. I know that sounds dreadful, but there's such a deeper fulfillment that comes out of having a strength of character and a relationship with yourself where you know you can count on yourself to encounter and navigate those obstacles. It's it's really so much more rewarding and and life is so much less scary you know, and, and sometimes I'll use this reframe. I mean, with, you know, thinking about someone I was talking to recently who went through a really horrible tragedy and, you know, has in general habits of kind of shirking in fear from ordinary hardships. And we were t- talking about this, like, well, think about what you've been through. I mean, anything else is nothing, you know, <laughs> anything else you could possibly face now. I mean, you're immune. That's, that's the good news, right? Yeah. I've, I've been um, recently reading a lot more about Stoic philosophy, and I even mm-hmm. uh, we did a podcast on Stoic philosophy. And there's that Latin term, the mental more, which, which basically translates to, like, remember you will die. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, you know, perspective, your, your, your time here is limited. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think what, what makes a purposeful, meaningful life is not the avoidance of hardship or emotional pain or struggle. It's about... Uh, making your mark in this life and and being able to experience joy and love and with that there's a dialectical uh, you know opposite if you're going to if you're going to love you're going to experience loss um, if you're going to feel good you're going to feel pain and there's got to be an acceptance of all those in order to to live life fully yeah and I would add. Don't be afraid of having a personality. I think that the, the, the over-diagnosis, over-pathologization of everything is, it's almost an excuse for not having a personality or an excuse for having undesirable personality traits. Well, don't blame me, blame my depression, blame my PTSD. It's like, you know what? If, if you're gonna live a life, if you're gonna live a life before you die, you're gonna have to take some risks and some of those involve having a personality. Sometimes that means offending people or just not being liked by everyone or, you know, having whatever peculiar quirks and rough edges you might have. And it takes courage to just live that out and not feel the need to hide behind some label to excuse it away. And I think to recognize that that personality involves trade-offs that, you know, there's, you can avoid conflict, avoid upsetting anyone, but then you're kind of 
shy and boring and playing it safe, or you can take more risks and and end up with some traits that are going to be obnoxious to some people. And, you know, you, you can't please everyone and you can't be perfect, but it's okay to live a life and it's okay to have life rub off on you, have a character, have a personality. Not everything is a pathology. So true. Well said. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. It's a good conversation. Okay, Roger, thanks so much for joining me. This is so much fun. So tell people where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin, D-R, my last name, M-C-F-I-L-L-I-N. And on all the major, wherever you listen to your podcasts, you can download uh, the Radically Genuine podcast, whether that's Apple or Spotify or any major platform, you'll be able to find us. And look out for our, our YouTube channel coming you know, this summer where we're going to talk about in depth with experts and a lot of the topics that we explored today. And uh, if you want to check out my, my center, we're Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. We're in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and that's www.centerforibh.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I hope people Thank find you, you and listen to your podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At sometherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.